Matthew 4, 9 says this. All of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's a promise of blessing that if it came across your verse of the day Bible app, it might give you a good feeling. Less so when you realize who said it. Big old red horns himself. Now this is when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And that realization of who said this word, by the way, this is inspired by true events. Verse of the day, calendar, didn't realize, hey, that's not a verse, maybe we should just single out. It completely changes the emotion behind those words from hopeful or joyful to contempt or maybe even fear. Fear that you could be duped by something so uh, easily swayable here. In our church app for Highland, last week we started a verse of the day thing that you can opt into by going to your notification settings. And this is something that we are handpicking doing ourselves. This isn't some outside app doing it for us. We're picking the verses that are coming through every morning for you. And that might seem like an easy job, but it's actually a big responsibility to make sure that we are presenting things in the right context. Some verses singled out actually provide the wrong kind of message, or at least an incomplete one. So some verses will actually be several verses that will come across over several days to provide context. And some verses we may not use at all, like this one. Now, of course, that's not because each verse in the Bible isn't important, but the real reason is because the Bible wasn't written to be sectioned off like this. When the authors of the Bible were writing it, they didn't write it with chapters and verses. That is something that we added later to make it more easily searchable and easy to read along uh, corporately at church and things of that nature. So imagine that we take other books And just pull one line of context out. What would we come up with? For instance, in the book and movie Gone with the Wind, author Margaret Mitchell came up with a line for the character of Scarlett O'Hara that ends with probably the most memorable line or one of the most memorable lines from the book and movie. After all, tomorrow is another day. And that, out of context, seems to express the idea of a fresh start, a new beginning, Starting tomorrow off maybe on a better footing. However, when Scarlett says the line in the book, she's not really thinking that way at all. The full line is, I'll think of it all tomorrow at Tara. I can stand it then. Tomorrow I'll think of some way to get him back after all. Tomorrow is another day. The next day might be new, but to Scarlett, it's just like the one before. Just another opportunity to try and win her love back. It's a pattern. It's a drudgery. Another opportunity for her to be disappointed. She has simply spent all of her energy for today. She'll pick right back up in the same pattern of misery tomorrow. Now sure, there might be a twinge of hope there at the end. But it's not the kind that brings a smile and a sunbeam. It's a desperate hope. One of clawing through emotional mud. Context matters. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about four verses that are often taken straight out of context. By us believers. 
And we're going to help to show you that putting them back into context not only changes their meaning, but that the original message is much more fulfilling to us. And today we're going to start with perhaps the most well-known of them all, Jeremiah 29.11. Let's read it out of context first. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. There are generally two kinds of ways people take this verse in Christian circles today. The first are those who take this verse and plaster it on motivational posters and coffee mugs, and they say it in the graduation speeches, and it's just this big reminder of God's amazing plans for my life. It's a warm fuzzy that they can cling to, and it just keeps a smile on their face. And I'm not saying that there is anything terribly wrong with that, but it is incomplete. The second kind of Christian is the one who loves to squash the joy of the first kind of Christian <laughs> by saying, Jeremiah 29 11 is not about you. Which also isn't completely wrong. But still, incomplete. So let's get some backstory and then read the verse with a little bit more context. So Jeremiah spoke these words to God's chosen people, the Jews who had been living under the domination of both the Egyptian and then the Babylonian empires, before eventually being carried from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, we can only imagine what it would be like to live under the domination of our enemies, and then to be forced by those enemies to move from your homeland and settle in their homeland, a foreign country. For literary context, we discover from the previous chapter that Jeremiah has just pronounced judgment upon a false prophet, Hananiah. Now, Hananiah had told the people of God that God would break the yoke of Babylon, freeing the people to return home within two years. And while his message undoubtedly sounded appealing to the people, sorry, uh, it was, Oh, is that your thing? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm like, where is that? I thought it was me. Um, It was a lie. It sounded appealing. It was a lie. And resulted in God removing Hananiah from the face of the earth. Instead, Jeremiah tells the people they would live in Babylon for at least 70 years. And so therefore, he says, you need to settle down, build houses, marry, and pray for the peace and prosperity of the city in which you now find yourselves, because for at least for now, this is home. So this is a story about hardship, one of the toughest that the chosen people ever faced. But they also kind of brought it on themselves. Let's read a little history in Second Chronicles. This is Second Chronicles 36, 14 through 21. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people." until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the 
Chaldeans, I'm pretty sure is how you pronounce that, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old men or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all of its places with fire, and destroyed all of its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So way back when, the land of Canaan was given to the people of Israel under the condition that they remain obedient to God's law. And then they immediately decided they were not going to be obedient to God's law. The story of Israel, of God's chosen people, is one of continuous sin. And for generations up to this point, God had protected them, blessed them, grown them. And though they had seasons of obedience, they always came to an end and they broke the law of Moses, worshipped false gods, turned their back on the true God again and again. So God had reached a point where he decided to punish his people. He removed his protection from them and let them suffer their own consequences. They were captured and hauled off to a new country as essentially slaves. Why would God do this? Let's pick up in Jeremiah 29 and let's read in context, starting with verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete, completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So yes, Jeremiah 29.11 is about hope. Just not in the context that we usually hear it. And so I intend to show you that two things can be true at once. First of all, no. Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't about you. This is a specific promise to God's chosen people at a specific circumstance that does not apply to us in the present in the way that it applied to the people of Israel. But secondly, yes, Jeremiah 29, 11 is about you, at least indirectly. 
And I'm going to explain what I mean in three points. So my first point this morning is that Jeremiah 29.11 is a reminder that God is in control. It's a promise written for you, it's just not written to you. The context makes it clear that this is a specific promise to not a single person, not you, not you, but to the people of God. It is a promise to the church at large, to the group, not the individual. In fact, many of the people that originally heard that promise would die long before that 70 years were up. And so it couldn't have been a promise to each individual person, because God even knew at that time that many of those that were there taken into exile would not be returning. It was the people of God that would be returning. And what he promised did come to pass. Israel was in a terrible spot, and even in the middle of punishing them, God wanted to comfort them, saying that it will come to an end. That you will realize what you're missing, that you will seek me, and I will be found by you, and I will bring you home, and I will restore you, and I will prosper you. And when you think of that in a group context, he's saying the people of God will return to God. Together. This verse is telling us that while life will get incredibly difficult at times, it is God who's in control. And while the difficult season might not end tomorrow, God is still there and he will bring his people through it. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25 and 26, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Jeremiah 29.11 is not, was not, and is not a promise to immediately rescue us from hardship or suffering. But rather a promise that God has a plan for our lives. And regardless of our current situation, he will still be there to fulfill those plans. He can work through any difficulty and prosper us to give us a hope and a future. That is the truth that we can actually find hope in, even even if the original story wasn't specifically about us. Furthermore, Christians can take comfort in knowing that God promises to be there for us in these situations, even as we suffer in them. When outside forces surround us and threaten us, he's there. But that brings us to point number two. Jeremiah 29.11 is an example of God's method for bringing us out of our own captive sin. I personally am no stranger to habitual sin. I have struggled with many in my lifetime. God has brought me through some of them. Some of them he's still working on. And I would assume that most of us are kind of in that same boat. We have sins that we don't want to do, but we feel like we can't escape them. Heck, even Paul struggled. Remember, Romans seven eighteen through 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's part of the human condition. The part we fight against and work to surrender to God, knowing that we will never be fully successful this side of heaven, yet striving to be, because of our new nature in Christ. But sometimes we are purposefully disobedient. 
Maybe we are tired of fighting. Maybe we're even addicted. But whatever the case, we give ourselves permission to continue in these bad habits. Knowing that God is a loving God, but also a God who wants the best for us, what must he do when we are disobedient? Oftentimes, he'll do the same thing that he did to Israel. He'll discipline us. When God allowed this to happen to or happen in Jeremiah, he even took the credit for it. He said that he carried Israel into exile. This punishment was a part of the plan. But hear me say this. The punishment was a part of the plan, but the plan wasn't just the punishment. The punishment was just the eye-opener. It was the one step in the process to get it going. It was a painful step, to be sure, but a necessary one to see things from a different perspective. For several years here at Highland, we ran a branch of a worldwide program called Celebrate Recovery. Now, I've been a part of Celebrate Recovery as both an attendee and a leader for about 15 of the last 18 years. I led the whole program here in its last two years. It's a faith-based 12-step program for all habits, hang-ups, and hurts. And while we had all kinds of people here, believers and not, it was the believers who put their pride aside and took the program willingly of their own volition that gave me the most joy. Because it takes a lot of courage to walk through those doors. Because even being in the room was to admit that you were struggling with a habitual sin. And unfortunately, modern church culture has trained us to kind of keep that stuff bottled up whenever we walk into this building. Which shouldn't be the case, but I'm not going to get on that soapbox because we'll be here all day. But most who come, who came to that program, came because they had little choice. Something they'd been doing in the dark had been brought to light by either their family, uh, by a spouse, by a legal authority, someone had told them, come here, do this, get help. If you struggle with an habitual sin, you can run on for a long time, hiding it from the people around you. But God knows about it all. And he knows that sometimes the best way for you to find freedom from that captivity of sin is to suffer the own consequences of that sin. So God may remove his protection from you for a season, knowing that when it is all said and done, you will return to him, just like Israel did after 70 years. And while he removes his protection for a time, that's not to say that he abandons you. He's with you every step of the way. Which brings me to point three. Jeremiah 29 as a chapter is a promise of God's dwelling place that's fulfilled in Jesus God's trustworthiness did not allow him to abandon his people forever into exile. After 70 years, they were allowed to return to their land and start again. However, it is clear that the main problem of sin in the history of Israel was not solved. It remains an open question in the Old Testament of how God can dwell with incorrigible sinners. Somehow, the law should be within the people and written on their hearts before real obedience is achieved. Jeremiah 31:33 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
in the New Testament, this mystery is revealed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man and died for the sins of his people, and now God's Spirit dwells in every believer. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, do, not, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And more than that, God remains within us forever. Revelation 21.3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Old Testament to the end of the book, the message is the same. God's plans for you include Him being within us, both as individuals through salvation and as a church body of believers. We're His home. We're His dwelling place. He's here. We never need fear being abandoned by God, even in our darkest times, whether they be brought on by others or by our own sin. God will remain with us, guiding us, loving us, leading us. Because he has plans for us. Not to harm us, but to prosper us, to give us hope and a future. So what does that mean? Real quick, let me explain. When God plans to prosper us, he doesn't necessarily mean he'll make us rich. In fact, he rarely means that because money is often a downfall for us. But a fulfilling life, a family, a job, a place to serve others, brothers and sisters in Christ who will rally around you, any of these and in any combination are amazing blessings of true prosperity. He will even sometimes restore to your life things that were lost in your sin. He plans to give us hope. Hope is an essential piece of our hearts and minds. Without hope, we wither as people. We likely all know somebody who has no hope, and we see how they crumble. And know that there is hope that they can cling on to if they would just open their hearts to it. God promises to fuel us with hope even in our worst moments. And he has a future planned for us. Now what that future will be, how long it will last, you will never know until you get there. But God has prepared in advance good works for you to do, people to bless, hearts to mend, lives to change, and minds to open for his sake. And there could be no greater honor, privilege, or future than to be used by God to further his kingdom. Years ago, a small town in Maine was proposed for the site of a big new hydroelectric plant. But since the dam that they would have to build would be built across the river, the entire town next to the river would be submerged in water. And so when the project was announced, the people were given several months to arrange their affairs and to relocate. And so during the time between that announcement and before the dam was built, an interesting thing happened in the town. All improvements ceased. No painting was done, no repairs were made on the buildings or the roads or the sidewalks. Day by day, the whole town just got shabbier and shabbier. 
A long time before the waters would come, the town looked uncared for and abandoned, even though many of the people were still there. One citizen complained, where there is no faith in the future, there's no power for the present. The town was cursed with hopelessness because they knew it would soon be gone. It had no future. Some of our lives are cursed with no hope for the future. Maybe we let God into some parts of our hearts, the parts that are already neat and in order. But God wants to invade your heart entirely. And he doesn't want to share that heart with anything keeping you in captivity. So putting Jeremiah 29.11 straight into context, be ready to surrender those things that pull you away from God. Seek God with all of your heart. Trust that he is in control and that he is powerful enough to bring you out of captivity. He will be found by you. He dwells within you and within your church body. And he knows your needs better than you.